Job chapter 32, verses 1 to 5. So these three men stopped answering Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. But Elihu, son of Barakel the Buzite, of the family of Ram, became very angry with Job for justifying himself rather than God. He was also angry with the three friends because they had found no way to refute Job and yet had condemned him. Now Elihu had waited before speaking to Job because they were older than he. But when he saw that the three men had nothing more to say, his anger was aroused. Now we switch to Job 33, verses 8 to 18. But you have said in my hearing, I heard the very words, I am pure, I have done no wrong, I am clean and free from sin, yet God has found fault with me. He considers me his enemy. He fastens my feet in shackles. He keeps close watch on all my paths. But I tell you, Job, in this you are not right, for God is greater than any mortal. Why do you complain to him that he responds to no one's words? For God does speak. Now one way, now another, though no one perceives it, in a dream, in a vision of the night, when deep sleep falls on people as they slumber in their beds, he may speak in their ears and terrify them with warnings to turn them from wrongdoing and keep them from pride, to preserve them from the pit, their lives from perishing by the sword. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we thank you for these words in the book of Job. And we pray that you would speak to us by your spirit and help us to know more about you and about ourselves in Jesus' name. Amen. We are coming towards the end of Job. About time, I hear you say. This is week eight. And I was encouraged last week to hear some of the things that we've learned from Job so far. These are things that you said in the service last week. Thank you for those. We'll see most of those happening in our passage as well today in, in this section. We are getting very close to the end. Now, if this were a TV series, at this point of the series, kind of, what's that, episode 7, episode 8 of 10, there's often a bit of a lull, isn't there? We've, we've introduced, we've met the main characters the writers have gone through the main part of the story, and now a couple of episodes before the end, there's a bit of a lull before we get to the exciting conclusion. I feel like that often happens in TV shows that I like. And it's tempting to think of Elihu like that. The slightly annoying bit that you want to skip before the end. But I used to think of him like that myself when reading Job. But one of the things that I've learned from Job this time round is that perhaps Elihu isn't the blowhard I always thought he was, but something of a prophet instead. So let's dive into these verses from chapter 32. 
I'm actually going to read them from the ESV because they highlight something that the NIV doesn't quite. These three men ceased to answer Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. Then Elihu, the son of Barakel, the Buzite of the family of Ram, burned with anger. He burned with anger at Job because he justified himself rather than God. He burned with anger also at Job's three friends because they had found no answer, although they had declared Job to be in the wrong. Now Elihu had waited to speak to Job because they were older than he. And when Elihu saw there was no answer in the mouth of these three men, he burned with anger. The clearest thing, probably, about Elihu's speeches in chapters 32 to 37 is that he is a very angry man. He's furious. He burns with anger. That phrase repeated four times. The NOV only has it three times. That's why I use that one. He's furious with Job. How dare Job say these things about God? And he's furious with Job's friends. How can they not answer? They've said so much stuff. How can they not have found an answer? As I said, Elihu is often written off as an angry young blowhard. He sounds to us full of himself. He's so sure he's right. While he seems to rehearse many of the same things and arguments that the three friends have been saying for the last 30 chapters. And as I said, that's how I've normally read Elihu's speeches. But actually, this time around, I've learned there's more to him than meets the eye. As so often with Scripture, it helps just to scratch a little beneath the surface to see what's really going on, see what the words actually say. Compare these words from Elihu. This is uh, later on in chapter 32. I am full of words, and the spirit within me compels me. Inside, I am like bottled up wine, like new wineskins ready to burst. I must speak and find relief. Compare those words with these words from the prophet Jeremiah. His word is in my heart like a fire, a fire shut up in my bones. I am weary of holding it in. Indeed, I cannot. I think there are echoes of a prophet in Elihu, that the word of God that is within him that he can't contain, it has to come out somehow. So when Elihu says, listen to me, he says it repeatedly through these speeches. He says, listen to me, he says. Let's not dismiss him as a blowhard, but listen to him as a prophet, speaking, although imperfectly, with the insight of God's Holy Spirit. You see, one of the main points of Elihu's speeches, and one of the reasons that Job highlights for us his youth, the point is that wisdom can't be worked out, nor does it come with age. Wisdom is not something, the true wisdom of God, that you can gain from experience or from observing the world. That's what the friends have been trying to do, and they've come up short. The reason is because, as chapters 1 and 2 tell us, there's stuff going on behind the scenes that we can't possibly know. We cannot work it all out. So true wisdom can only come from God. And Elihu says that time and again. He says, my wisdom, he says, comes from afar, as in it's come from God. He's listened to God, and now he's passing this on to Job and his friends. Listen. Now, Jess is working this weekend. That's why she's not here. Yesterday, she sent me a message in the afternoon asking me to get some chicken thighs out of our freezer. This is what she wrote. 
meant to say, can you get some chicken thighs out of the freezer? They're in a horrible yellow clip bag and labelled chicken breast, I think. But they do look like thighs from the outside. Wait, maybe a blue one, actually. <laughs> okay. Now, it is a little confusing, and in fairness to her, she's on an A&E ward and was rushing around. But actually, it's not that complicated. What am I looking for? I'm looking for a blue bag labelled chicken breast that contains chicken thighs. The problem is I stopped reading here. Can you guess what I did next? I spent a couple of minutes searching our freezer for a yellow clip bag labelled chicken thighs. Did I succeed? No. I shut the freezer door. Then my dinosaur brain told me, hang on, didn't she say something about blue? So I went back to the messages. Can you guess what I did next? I spent another couple of minutes now searching for a blue bag, but still saying chicken breast on it. Did I succeed? No, I did not. So this time, I shut the freezer door and I sent a reply. Can't find any thighs, only breast. I went back to my study to carry on preparing this sermon for you this morning. A little annoyed, it has to be said, at the interruption. Not least because now I thought I was going to have to go to the shop to buy some chicken thighs so we could have the dinner that Jess had planned for the evening because she'd made a mistake about the contents of our freezer. After a couple of minutes of reading Job again, my dinosaur brain gave me a little nudge. See, Jess normally has an extremely accurate memory of what's in our freezer. She does the meal plans every week, and uh, of course, once she's done the meal plan, she goes and looks at what we've got, and then works out what she needs to buy. So I thought to myself, I'm sure she would have checked more carefully than that. So I looked at her messages again, and this time, I managed to read the whole thing. They're labelled chicken breast, but they contain thighs. Duh! I went back to the freezer, and can you guess what I found? I found a blue clip bag that said chicken breast on the outside, but contained chicken thighs on the inside. I put it out to defrost, and we then had some delicious Korean spicy chicken for our dinner. Now, what on earth is the point of that long story? Well, to be honest, it's that we humans, because I know it's not just me, are not very good at listening. We jump to conclusions. We finish other people's sentences in our heads, sometimes out loud. We don't wait to hear what people are actually saying. We ignore things if they're inconvenient. We listen with half an ear because we're in the middle of something much more important. We're distracted, we're right, we already know. That is the main point of Elihu's first speech. See, Job has accused God of being silent, of not responding. Chapter 33, verse 14, God does speak... Now one way, now another, though no one perceives it. Elihu carries on, saying God might speak through a dream, verse 15, or a vision. Sometimes he may speak through people's warnings, verse 16. Why? Verse 17, to turn them from wrongdoing and keep them from pride. To preserve them from the pit, their lives from perishing by the sword. He continues... Verse 19, someone may be chastened on a bed of pain, unable to eat, verse 20, even the choicest meal. They may be wasting away to nothing, verse 21. They may be near to the pit, close to death, verse 22. Yet through all that, verse 23, they might learn how to be upright. And so, verse 25, be restored and renewed. And then go to others and say, verse 27, 
I have sinned and I have perverted what is right, but I did not get what I deserved. God has delivered me from going down to the pit and I shall live to enjoy the light of life. Interesting words. C.S. Lewis put it a bit like this in a famous passage from his book, The Problem of Pain. The human spirit will not even begin to try to surrender self-will as long as all seems to be well with it. Now, error and sin both have this property, that the deeper they are, the less their victim suspects their existence. They are masked evil. Pain is unmasked, unmistakable evil. Every man knows that something is wrong when he is being hurt. We can rest contentedly in our sins, but pain insists upon being attended to. And then this famous line, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. The reason is because pain cries out something is wrong. Because, friends, something is wrong. And when everything seems right, it's easy to forget that. Because what's wrong is not just the world, but our own hearts. And pain doesn't allow us to forget that. See, these three friends have a simplistic understanding of the world. Put evil in, get pain back. But Elihu is wiser. Perhaps there is more to it than that. Perhaps God can work through pain to reach and teach parts of us that otherwise remain hidden underneath the veneer of, oh yeah, I'm fine, thanks. I've certainly seen God work like this through my own pain in life. Though it's hard to see in the middle of it, it doesn't mean God is not working through it. I'm still in the middle of my annoying balance problems. I don't know what that's doing in my life. Still waiting for God to teach. The point is, are we listening? Am I listening or am I avoiding God because I don't want to know? It's a hard teaching, partly because it suggests that God is a stern Victorian schoolmaster with his cane out who thinks that the only way to teach anyone anything is to give them a good caning. But it's not that at all. It's more like the cross. God bringing life through pain, suffering, defeat, and death. The very worst thing humans have ever done, murdering the author of life, killing God's son, was the moment of God's glory. It was the moment when Jesus was glorified. He says that in John 17. It's more like what we read in Psalm 23. God doesn't save us from the valley of the shadow of death, but he is with us as we walk through it, so we do not need to be afraid. That's really what it's like. Sometimes it is only when the pain has stripped away all the things that we normally rely on that we are ready to listen, ready to heed God's warnings, ready to turn back and so find life. Like the prodigal son who went home thinking he would need to beg for mercy and found his father running to throw his arms around him. All he had to do was come to his senses and turn back.
Can we listen to God? Elihu's second speech is often written off. In fact, one of the uh, books I have described it as very disappointing. (laughs) It's quite something when someone writes a commentary on the Bible describes it as very disappointing. It's true. I mean, Elihu is pretty brutal in some of his second speech. Chapter 34, verse 7, he says, Is there anyone like Job who drinks scorn like water? He keeps company with evildoers. He associates with the wicked. Pretty harsh. The third speech is pretty similar. It all sounds quite like what the friends have been saying all along. Job is suffering, so he must have sinned. He must be wicked. Do you remember, a few weeks ago now, that they even started inventing sins that he must have committed? You must have cheated a widow out of her income. You must have kicked out the orphans. But that's not what Elihu is doing here in these speeches. He's warning Job, and he's calling him to repent. This is the phrase that I will be repeating. Job isn't suffering because he sinned, but his suffering is causing him to sin. Job isn't suffering because he sinned, but his suffering is causing him to sin. See, in these chapters, Elihu doesn't imagine what Job must have done to deserve it, Actually, what he does is he quotes and he summarizes what Job's just said. The things that Job has actually said that are wrong. And he says, Job, you've gone too far. And we know he has. God is not Job's enemy. 33 verse 10. Elihu's summarizing Job saying, God has found fault with me. He considers me his enemy. He doesn't. We know that from chapters 1 and 2. Job is God's enemy friend, his servant. It is not God who has afflicted Job, something that Elihu summarizes in chapter 34, verse 6. It is Satan's hand that has done this, with God's permission and within limits set by God. Job says it doesn't matter whether we sin or do what's right, because we're going to suffer anyway. He's dangerously close to proving Satan's original accusation. Do you remember what that was? that Job only serves God because of the good stuff he gets. So take all that away, Satan says, and you'll see the real Job. Job is perilously close. He's teetering. Job says he's innocent, and he's right. He's not suffering because he'd done wrong. But because of his suffering, he's now accusing God of all sorts of things. So Elihu has grown angry with Job for justifying himself rather than God. Job isn't suffering because he sinned, but his suffering is causing him to sin. You see, this is all part of Satan's plan. Satan wants to turn us away from God, and he doesn't care how he does it. He doesn't care which tactic works. He just wants one of them to work on us. So sometimes he does it by accusing us, by focusing our attention on our flaws on our faults, our failings. How can God possibly love you? Satan says, pointing at us as we cower away in the corner. And actually, that's what Job's friends did. It must be your fault, they said. You must be wicked. That's what Satan says to us sometimes. But sometimes he turns us away from God, not by accusing us, but by accusing God. 
See, we can see Satan behind the scenes, not only in chapters 1 and 2 in the heavenly court, but throughout the book as he whispers lies to Job. God is your enemy. God is unjust. God is weak. God isn't in charge. God is cruel. When he does that, we can start to look down on God. We can start to think, oh, we know best. We can start to justify ourselves rather than God. Exactly what Job was doing, starting to do. See, Job isn't suffering because he sinned, but his suffering is causing him to sin. And that's why Elihu is quite strong with Job in these speeches. Some of his words might grate, and possibly some of the things are not things that I might say in a pastoral situation. Certainly not unless I knew the person very, very well. I have a friend, their church didn't do much during lockdown, so they they stopped going, and they haven't been back since. I have started off quite gently. You really, you know, come on. Just go back to church, shouldn't you, really? Last time I spoke to him, and I told him he needed to get himself back to church. He needed to get himself back into God's family because he risks falling away if he hasn't already. That's a process that took many years, and it's a friend I've had for 22 years. And he's done the same to me, and I hope he would. Elihu is strong with Job, but that's because Job is in danger. He's teetering. He's in danger of actually becoming God's enemy, like he thinks he already is. And so the prophet Elihu calls him back. That's what prophets do throughout the Old Testament. It's not just about predicting the future. It's about calling God's people back. Come back to the Lord. Be faithful as he is faithful to you. Elihu calls Job to repent. And as we'll see in a couple of weeks' time, that is exactly what Job does. Elihu was right. We need to learn to listen to God who is trustworthy and to ignore Satan who is not. The father of lies. Now I like to make things. Mostly what I make is software, so it's pretty boring for most of you. But I find it a great way of being creative. Here is a model I was given for my birthday. It's a Mustang. When I was 30, I did a a road trip around America in a red Mustang. They couldn't find a red one, but given it was 10 years ago, they thought they'd buy me a green one anyway. So there we go. I like making things. What are some of the things you like to make? Anyone like to be creative? Food? Socks. Socks. Bobby makes socks. Did anyone know Bobby? I didn't know Bobby makes socks. (laughs) Trains? Blankets, blankets. Poems, lovely, good, excellent. Phil? I made a mosaic at New Wine. He made a mosaic at New Wine, lovely. It's lovely to create, isn't it? You see, I think the creativity that we have is part of what it means to be made in the image of God. That's why it's so fulfilling when we make things, or it can be anyway, because it expresses something of who we are deep inside, of what it means to be human. Elihu ends his speeches by talking about God as creator. Only God doesn't create Lego kits like me. He makes mountains. He makes the thunder, the snow, the rain, the driving wind, the lightning, the golden splendor of the sun. Elihu talks breathlessly of God's awesome power, his majesty, and his might. 
chapter 36, verse 26, Elihu says, How great is God beyond our understanding. Chapter 37, verse 2, Listen, listen to the roar of his voice, to the rumbling that comes from his mouth. Verse 22, Out of the north he comes in golden splendor. God comes in awesome majesty. Lift up your eyes, Elihu tells Job. Don't listen to Satan's lies. See who God really is. Because he is worthy of worship. He is trustworthy. And he is good. And he is awesome. Like the prophets, Elihu wants to divert our gaze away from this life with, as Paul puts it, our light and momentary troubles and towards the Almighty God in praise. Those things are only light and momentary because of the weight of what is to come. It's not to minimise what is happening now. It is to praise what is to come, to magnify it. We shouldn't be surprised that Elihu points us to God like this. His name means He is God. See, Elihu wants to remind us of who God is. To call us to trust that God's got this. We won't understand God's ways. In fact, we can't. But we can trust him. Like the prophets, Elihu is calling Job back to what he once was. A true worshipper who trusts God not because of the blessings he receives, but because God is worthy of that trust, no matter what happens. Like the prophets, Elihu is inspired by the Spirit of God. So we shouldn't be surprised that he ends exactly where God picks things up in chapter 38. But that's for next time. Elihu was angry. He was very angry at the way Job was talking about God. God can take it, but Elihu was cross. Instead of listening to Satan, Elihu tells Job, you should listen to God and trust him even when you don't understand that God alone is mighty and God alone is worthy of our worship. Lord, help us listen to Elihu's voice and to God. Amen.